First Samuel 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, one of our hosts will provide one for you. Just uh, raise your hand and get a, a Bible and a worship program for them. It's really helpful to have a, a physical Bible in front of you because you're able to see the, the entire context of, of a particular text. And if you grab one of those Bibles that are being passed out, you can find First Samuel chapter 2, verse 11 and following on page 212. 212. Over the last several years, there have been several high-profile pastoral failures. The issues in these circumstances have included everything from sexual misconduct, financial mismanagement, pride, and abusive leadership. As these stories come out, I always feel a mix of both outrage and soul-searching to remind myself that no one is above those sins. These stories are always heartbreaking because many of these pastors had significant ministries or did significant good. They preached the truth. They answered questions. They counseled people, encouraged the hurting. And yet they disqualified themselves for ministry over some kind of heinous sin or particular sinful patterns. And what's worse is when these sins go on unrepentant and they upset the faith of those under their influence. And the consequences of the sin of spiritual leaders can be devastating and lead to disruption of individual lives and churches. The moral failure of spiritual leaders is one of the things that can undermine the ministry of a church faster than just about anything else. And a reality is that for some you might be slow to embrace Christianity or faith in Jesus because of difficult experiences with those who had spiritual influence over you. And those kinds of things are destructive. Last week, I opened the service with a question about what would a society look like without true leadership? Well, today, we're asking a more specific question. What do we do with corrupt spiritual leadership? How are we to stay faithful when those in spiritual authority or influence use their position as an opportunity to take advantage of the very people they are called to serve? So you remember the book of 1 Samuel is written in the context of uh, the transition from the judges of Israel who are leading the people. They're transitioning from the judges to the monarchy, to a a, a king. Remember, the end of Judges concludes with uh, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And remember, in the context of Israel, it's a theocracy. There was no separation between church and state. So the the political leaders were also the, the religious leaders. Or there was this mix of prophet, priest, and king that were meant to guide, teach, shepherd, lead the people, and even have spiritual influence over them. You remember that, that God used Hannah, this barren woman, to, to bear a child, and then she dedicated him to the temple. He was going to be in the Lord's service forever. So she took him there as a young boy, and she left him there. But when Hannah left Samuel in the temple at Shiloh, she didn't leave him around a lot of great spiritual role models. It feels a little bit about the butt like the bus I used to ride growing up. Kind of left there totally on your own. 
But we'll see that God is still working, despite the corruption of the spiritual leadership over Israel, God was still working to raise up a faithful one who would serve him, love his people, and lead them as well. The narrative of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 and following is quite sophisticated. In each section, we're overwhelmed at one level by this negative example, by, by these difficult truths or these rebukes of the priest of Israel. And yet in each section, there's this small glimmer of hope. There's a small glimmer of hope. God is not leaving his people. So we're overwhelmed by sin and rebellion. However, God is working in the details for his purposes, his glory, and the good of his people. If you're following on your worship program, our main idea today is this, that worthless servants do not hinder the faithfulness of God. Worthless servants do not hinder the faithfulness of God. Of God. God, is, God is faithful despite the worthlessness, lack of discipline, and faithlessness of his servants. And in this sermon, I'm going to draw some comparisons and analysis between the Old Testament priest and then the, the, the new covenant office of pastor or elder. And we need to be very clear that those things are not one in the same. And I'm not going to get into all the ways in which they're different this morning. I want to emphasize their similarity. And their primary similarity is simply to be spiritual servants or spiritual influences over or in God's people for his glory and their spiritual good. And I hope this today. I hope that for all of us is that our trust in God would grow. And that our view of man, even, even those of spiritual influence, would be realistic. And that for any of you in particular who have been wronged by spiritual leaders or those in spiritual influence over you, is that that would not rob you of the joy that you can have in Christ. So our outline today, because of the outline of the text, we'll see a mix of rebuke along with just this glimmer of hope. And I think we see this in three different ways in our text this morning. The first one we see in verses 12 and following, that worthless servants do not hinder faithful servants. Worthless servants do not hinder faithful servants. Look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought forth or brought up, the priest would take for himself. That is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let me burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. 
And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when he went up, when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. You'll remember when we talked about Elkanah and Hannah last week, we talked about their piety, that they were faithful to the Lord. They were genuine in their relationship with him. And they went year after year to offer the sacrifice. But today we focus on different characters of the story. We get a deeper look at Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. No one will name their child Hophni and Phinehas after today. But these men and their father were priests in the Lord's service at the tabernacle there at Shiloh. But look at the description of these dudes in verse 12. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now you might say, how on earth could a priest of God not know the Lord? Well, in similar ways today, one does not know the Lord because of their occupation but only because of a heartfelt trust in God. These supposed servants of the Lord were using their spiritual authority and influence to take advantage of the very people they were called to serve. See, priests in the Old Testament were meant to mediate the worship between God and man. They were supposed to be those for who you would, you would come so that you could truly worship the Lord. But here they are not mediators of worship. They are hindrances of worship. The very priests who were supposed to, to facilitate worship in Israel were actually hindering the worship of Israel for their own selfish gain. In my estimation, there may be nothing more worthless than a supposed servant of God who does not truly know God. Look at how this passage describes their abuse. In verses 13 and 14, it says that while the, the worshipers came and were offering their sacrifice, the, the, these, the servant of the priest, and essentially the priest themselves, would come with their own fork, take it while it was being offered, and just run off it with them for themselves. Now, in context, the priests were actually permitted to have a piece of this sacrifice. There was a priestly portion, but here we say they're taking advantage of it and they're taking more than their share. While it was being offered as part of the sacrifice, they would come and grab it for themselves. But it gets worse. See, in verse 16, before the worshipers could offer their sacrifice, a servant goes to them and says, no, they're not just going to take it while it's being offered. They want it while it's raw. They, they, they want the choice pieces of meat, the pieces of meat that are reserved for the Lord himself. And if you don't give it, then I'll take it by force. This isn't a mafia intimidator who's coming to, to, to scare these worshipers. This is a priest of the Lord who says, we'll take it by force if you don't give it to us. They were interfering with the worship of God's people. And notice this damning statement in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This is blasphemy. This is heinous sin. 
And spiritual leaders who use their position for their own personal gain are blasphemous. It's disgusting. These are grievous sins. The Bible warns against this in contemporary society and in other parts of the Bible as well. In Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord rebukes the shepherds of Israel. Those are who are supposed to care for the people. He says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Spiritual leaders using their position of authority and of influence and and God's people who are using that position and authority for their own selfish gain. Jesus rebukes his own disciples when they're kind of fighting for who's first in the kingdom. And he says, the rulers of the nations, the rulers of the Gentiles dominate, use their position to dominate or lord it over those. But he says, it shall not be so among you. For the first of you shall be last. You shall take the role of a servant. And he says, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Spiritual leaders who take advantage or manipulate the people under their care are blasphemous. And see, as I studied this passage this week, those realities hit me in the face as a stern warning. Because Hess, this is speaking to myself here, I said, don't use your position for selfish gain. This needs to be a reminder of all, to all of our pastors and elders, to all of our staff, to anyone who has spiritual influence, who teaches, who serves in the capacity here in our church to say, if we use our position of spiritual influence or authority for our own manipulative, selfish gain, then we are to be cast out. For we're treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. I was reminded just this week of a, of a sermon that Tim Keller gave back in the late 1980s after his church was started. And he says, you know, it's easy to be tempted as a, as a professional Christian in some sense. It's easy to be tempted to say that the, 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 the demonstration of grace through our gifts or through our, our service here. It's easy to think if we're doing good there, then we're really doing good with the Lord. You might say, man, Zach must have a genuine relationship with Jesus because he preaches so boldly. Zach must really love Christ because he preaches about the love of Christ. Zach must have great joy in a sovereign God because he talks about the sovereignty of God. But you don't know my heart. These few minutes on this platform doesn't reveal the depth of my soul. And for anyone of any spiritual influence and authority in this world will always be tempted to use that position for selfish gain. And that's blasphemous. These are one of the sermons that you're often thinking about, okay, what do I hope people get? But this part of the sermon is really, I hope that you would pray for me. That you would pray for my integrity. That you would pray for our elders, our pastors and staff that we would truly serve out of the example of Christ, not to be served, but to to serve and to give as a ransom for many. 
For any of you who have endured the abuse, manipulation, the challenge of spiritual authorities over you or influences over you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everyone who's given the pastoral office a bad name. I'm sorry for every spiritual leader who failed you. And if that's been a challenge for you to to walk with Christ, to trust Christ in the midst of your life, then I'm doubly sorry. And my encouragement to you would be to not allow the worthless servants of God to rob your joy in God. This text leaves us with a bit of hope because worthless servants do not hinder the piety of faithful servants. In verse 18, we read of Samuel ministering before the Lord with his linen ephod on. on. This is the garment of the priest. It's this small little signal that there's there's a better servant that's coming. We see of Elkanah and Hannah, lay lay people in the context of Israel who are still staying faithful to the Lord despite the, the corruption of the spiritual influences that are over them. See, brothers and sisters, bad spiritual influences over us still do not give us an excuse to not follow the Lord faithfully. Your experience may be very real and challenging. You have made, you've had to endure quite a bit. But don't allow the sins of spiritual leaders to spoil your joy in God because Jesus is better than his servants. Our trust is not in spiritual leaders. Our trust is in Christ. Notice verse 21. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. See, our our biblically saturated mind should take us to a place in Luke Chapter 2, where Jesus is supposedly lost in the temple. Mary and Joseph come and, why would you do this to us? And he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? See, in that text in Luke and in this text in in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we just have these these small hints that there's a better servant coming. That that there's there's someone who 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 will be a spiritual influence of moral purity, of righteousness in the lives of people, who will be that one to whom we can trust. See, worthless servants do not hinder faithful servants. And, and we, we take this out of the, 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 the servant of the Lord kind of language. We see these priests, but we also then get into an issue of sons. A little bit more family oriented here in a moment as well. And our second idea where we see this rebuke and hope in the midst of this is in our second point, verse 22, where undisciplined sons do not hinder a faithful Son, undisciplined sons do not hinder a faithful son. Look at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, likely in his 80s or so by this time. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put him to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also 
with man. When, when we see the, the interactions of, these, uh, of, the, of Hophni and Phinehas, we wonder, where's dad? And we find Eli finally shows up, but with a delayed rebuke that fails to have a profound impact. We learn that these sons were doing more than just stealing meat from worshipers. They were taking sexual advantage of the female servants. Now, one of two things is going on here. One is they had either turned the tabernacle into a type of pagan cultic practice that would have had cult prostitutes as part of the worship. And you would have come and been with those cult prostitutes as part of your pagan worship. The other, and possibly more likely, is that they're actually taking advantage of pious women who are seeking to serve the Lord. And the reputation, the public gossip was, was going out. And, and, and uh, Eli hears this, and they're getting a bad reputation. And it almost seems, if you want to take a really negative view of Eli, it almost seems as if he's merely ashamed that the reputation has gone out. They're getting a bad name for themselves. But Eli does rebuke, and he tries to highlight uh, the, the seriousness of these claims. In verse 25, he says, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? See, one commentator just writes of this. He says this is a, a kind of a courtroom kind of scene. And he says if you have you know, two human beings that are standing against a judge and the, the dispute is between two human beings, then a judge can intercede and find a way to mediate this whole issue to bring about a resolution. But when you stand on the opposite side, the person you've offended is not just a mere mortal, but the divine, holy, righteous God of the universe. Bro, you have no hope. And see, Eli is recognizing that these sins are before God. But he's only partially right. It's not just certain sins that are an offense to God. It's all sin. This is why David can say in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. See, when we have a deficient view of sin, we have a deficient view of God. And if, and if we only look at our sins as mere mistakes, and when we've done something wrong, we simply say, my bad, oops. Or, or if when we've been wrong, if all we say, no big deal, it's okay. Then, then we have a deficient view about that our sin is an offense primarily to a holy, righteous God. See, we're like Hophni and Phinehas here at one point. To be able to say, who can go between your sin and a holy, righteous God? We have no hope. There's nothing there. See, repentance then is not just my bad or oops. Repentance is a measure of sorrow for our sins. It's, it's, it's a measure of remorse that we've done this. We've committed sins against the holy God. And we have no hope. And yet, Eli's sins are still late to listen. They've refused to listen. Look at verse 25. They don't just refuse to listen because they, they can't. They, part of the reason they refuse to listen is that they can't listen. But they would, refuse, they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, you might see that line and have alarm bells going off right now. What do you mean it was God's will to put them to death? Well, see, in, 
in one verse and one line, we have both divine sovereignty and human responsibility together. Those two ideas are not mutually opposed to one another. These sons will be put to death because it's what their sin deserves. The wages of sin is death and their sin deserves that kind of judgment, that kind of punishment that is there. And yet God is still sovereign over their situation and he will make sure that divine justice really takes place. Of this passage, John Piper says, the question here is not whether these sons were already guilty of high-handed sin against God and worthy of such punishment from the Lord. They were. Rather, the point is that the author goes out of his way to put their final disobedience in the hands of God. God knew what it would take to bring these sons to repentance and obedience, and he chose not to let it happen. Now, you might ask why. We don't totally know. And in the mind of God, only he knows why he would make this work out. This is a very complex idea. And still we must confess that God is sovereign and just and that human beings are morally accountable to him. And we will be judged for our sins. And these individuals are not innocent. God never punishes an innocent person. And God in his sovereignty and his justice will give them precisely what they deserve. And the same is true for us. For we are morally accountable to him and will get in his sovereignty what we deserve. And yet these undisciplined sons do not leave us without hope. For we see Samuel again in the shadows in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with God and with men. And your biblically saturated mind again reminds you that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with God and man. We're putting our trust in him. We, we know that there's something more that's coming, a, a faithful son that we can trust. But before we move on there too quickly, I want to also encourage all of us, especially young people here. Look at the faithfulness of Samuel despite his circumstances. And he, he remained true to the Lord. See, he could have been tempted, just like we are, to blame our environment, to blame the family we were born to, to blame the circumstances around us, to blame our, the, the, the disadvantages, the cards that were stacked against us to, to, that hinder our disobedience. We can blame, and blame our environment. Now, it doesn't mean that our environment has nothing to do with who we are or what's shaped us to be, but our environment might explain us, explain some challenges there, but it should never excuse our lack of obedience. See, Samuel, again, was living in the context of this temple without many positive examples. He was seeing all that was going on here, but yet Samuel made true, remained true to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we can remain true to the Lord with that kind of example. But again, more than that's just an example to us, our hope is in the true and real faithful son, Jesus, who grew in wisdom and in stature. We will never be perfect, but we trust the perfect son. So these undisciplined sons do not hinder a faithful son. And our final idea we see here in this text is that a faithless priest do not hinder a faithful priest. Faithless priests do not hinder a faithful priest. 
in 27 and following, kind of larger text, but it's important for us to see this. We see how God is rejecting Eli and his household, but he's raising up a faithful priest. Verse 27, and there came a man of God, a prophet to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart and all his descendants of your house shall die by the sword of man. Then in this shall be to come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign for you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will bid, build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in the one of the priest places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So almost out of nowhere, this prophet comes and he preaches judgment against Eli and it is not pretty. Similarly to, this is part of the Aaronic, um, uh, the house of Aaron that we see in Exodus, that, that the priests were supposed to come from his line. And it's interesting that part of his line in, that, uh, in those sections of scripture that we see that his two sons were killed for offering um, faulty worship as well. But here, the, the prophet is reminding Eli that they were part of a position of honor, but they kicked, they rebelled against God. And now he is losing the priesthood. But notice part of Eli's sin. It says, you have honored your sons above me by fattening yourselves with the choicest part of every offering. Eli had honored his sons above the Lord. He had turned his children into his God. He had more reverence for his two sons and wanting to make sure they were pleased that they were satisfied, then he had reverence for a holy God. He was not quick to correct. He was reluctant. He was not firm with discipline. He was passive. He valued his children over the Lord and allowed their rebellion, and he turned his children into his God. And for every parent here, we have a similar temptation. And I want to tread cautiously here. I'm a parent. And the challenge of parenting with consistency, with love, with discipline is difficult. 
And one of my favorite lines related to parenting that I've ever heard is that parents whose children turn out well oftentimes take too much of the credit. And parents whose children don't turn out so well oftentimes take too much of the blame. Two things here related to parenting. First, parents, God is sovereign over the lives of your children. You can trust him. He will always do what's right. And secondly, parents, especially dads, be consistent with correcting your children. It is actually unloving to not discipline or correct your child. For we have this example here of a, of a father who refused to correct. He honored his children more than God. He was more afraid of his children than he was of God. God is sovereign and we are responsible to steward, to parent, to discipline our children. To celebrate when they're doing great, to encourage them in righteousness, and to correct them when they're wrong. That God has given us that kind of authority in their lives. Stay faithful in the midst of it. We're going further in this text. God obviously rejects Eli's household because they have used their position for their own selfish gain. So what would we do with the priest of Israel? What hope is there? Who will facilitate this worship? Who, who, will, who will take the sacrifices? Who will promote godliness in the lives of Israel? God does not leave us without hope. Verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. He shall do according to all that is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, a forever house. He will forever go in and out before my anointed. And we know that Samuel is in the shadows, that he's waiting, that there is a faithful priest who is being raised up, who will lead and shepherd and guide his people. But we'll read later that Samuel wasn't perfect. Samuel had his own issues. But as we've already sung, there's a, we didn't have this line in here, but Christ, the true and greater Samuel, who will mediate for the people, who will be that priest who does not merely offer up the sacrifice, but is the sacrifice in and of himself. See, that question that still stands before us, if we've sinned against a holy and righteous God, who will go before? Who will intervene? Who will intercede on our behalf? If we sin before God, we have no hope. But see, Jesus is a greater high priest. Because Jesus doesn't take a ram or a bull and put it on the altar and say, satisfied. Jesus, through his own sacrifice, the righteous one, the great high priest who passes through the heavens, who is the one who takes all the sin that we've committed against the holy God so that we might be righteous, forgiven, and set free. Jesus, that great high priest, is the one in whom we can trust. Brothers and sisters, worthless servants do not hinder the faithfulness of God. Our trust is in that priest, the one of perfect integrity, the one of moral righteousness, the one who becomes sin so that we might take his righteousness. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are the one who is perfectly good, always righteous, and ever just. Thanks, Jesus, that we can hope in you. Pray for our church, for our staff, for our pastors and elders, for all those who teach and lead in our congregation. 
Lord, that we may not be counted as worthless servants who seek our own personal gain. But in the midst of our difficulties, the midst of our fallenness and shortcomings, we pray that we would always put our hope and trust in you, Lord Jesus. The one who is the great high priest, who through your own sacrifice pays all the debt that we have before a holy God. May we be filled with an ever greater awareness of your faithfulness to us, that we might have great hope and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.